Welcome to the Evaluating Biopharma podcast, where we meet with the top experts in the field to deconstruct challenges and opportunities that they've each experienced in order to provide you with real-world practical advice and knowledge to help in your own work and see things just a little bit differently. I'm your host, Ben Lockwin, and it's my pleasure today to get a chance to meet with Dr. Susan Dana-Jones, Chief Technology Officer at Tourmaline Bio, and chat about the risks and rewards in speed to IND strategies. Welcome, Susan. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Ben. It's great to be here. If you wouldn't mind starting this off from the top and sharing with the audience a little bit of a brief background on yourself. Uh, Sure, I'd be happy to. So I've been in the industry for over 30 years, and I spent several of my early years working for various startup biotech companies in the 80s and 90s. I spent 17 years working as a consultant with bioprocess technology consultants. So we offered CMC services to small and large companies. And that gave me really a breadth of experience across different platforms, different products, different companies, different risk profiles that I think really has helped me as I've moved back into being in product companies. Yeah, brilliant. I'm looking forward to to speaking with you about this. And I'm really excited to dig into this idea of the risks and rewards and speed to IND strategies. So starting off from the top, What are some strategies that companies use to get from biopharmaceutical or monoclonal antibody lead identification to IND filing quickly? Oh, there there are many, many approaches. Um, One of them is to actually start before lead identification and integrate the discovery and the development activities so that at least at the end of your discovery, you're perhaps making your products in the cell line that you intend to make your GMP product, maybe using the same expression system. And so that that really helps. It does cost money to do that, to have that expression system in-house and to be doing doing your lead screening from from that system. Uh, once you have your identified your lead, again, spending money always helps. If you can't have speed, quality, and cheap all in the same product. Um, but you can do things like if you have a couple of leads, two, three, four leads, and you haven't narrowed it down yet, but you want to start your development activities, you can start making production cell lines for those four. Again, it's expensive, it takes resources, but it gets you started early. You can pick your lead clone early, which has benefits. It also has risks that we can talk about a little bit later. You can um, do process development with, for example, your transfection pool. Again, there are some some risks with that. And lastly, or maybe not lastly, because there are many strategies, but companies have been talking about, you know, for the last five or five or so years, using pooled stable clones to make the tox material. Because as you're moving from lead discovery into, you know, an IND and a a human clinical study, doing your GLP tox study can be rate limiting, is often rate limiting. So getting to that tox material early before you've picked your lead clone is a strategy that that some companies are, are employing. Again, costs money. You have to have a lot of analytics to then compare that tox material with your final GMP material, but it can it can accelerate your path. Mm, those are some great points. And how about on the risk side of things? What risks are associated with these strategies for accelerated timelines? Well, integrating your discovery and development, I don't see having much risk at all, but some of the other strategies I, I alluded to definitely have risks. For example, picking your, your lead clone early 
can uh, you you can have a clone. You've selected it. You know, after six to eight weeks of putting it through screening, you've selected maybe on product quality and titer and those sorts of things. It may turn out to not be a stable clone, and so then you've picked the clone, you've banked it, and you're left with a clone that maybe can't get you even to the two thousand liter scale because the the productivity just just falls off. Um, or you pick a lead clone, but you also do a master cell bank of a backup clone, do all your process development with the lead clone, and again, find out it's for some reason you can't use it. So you go into manufacturing with your backup clone. If you've had no experience in purification with your lead clone, you may find, and I have seen this happen, that the backup clone, the material from the backup clone behaves very differently, you know, in, in, both in the upstream and in the in the downstream process. You can have different impurity profiles. I mean, it's amazing how different the material from different clones can be. Um, and that can impact the, the downstream performance. Mm. So those, and each of those, those, are, those are some of the risks. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. And, and each of those risks have kind of a differential risk profile, I'm guessing, you know, some more critical and deep than others. Yes, definitely. Definitely. It's uh, it's the impact on product quality. It's the impact on, on yield, which can matter, especially if you're in like a high dose antibody. You know, if you're trying to get doses of 10 or 20 migs per kg, you know, you really can't afford a product, you know, losing product in, in your in your downstream process or having a clone that doesn't produce as much antibody or protein as, as you were hoping for. Right, right. All right. This next question I have may be the iconoclast question of this episode. So I'm looking forward to covering it because controversy, I think, sometimes is a great tool. How, how in your mind, does quality by design, QBD, impact speed to IND filing? Oh, that is a great question, Ben. I've spent a lot of time talking about and thinking about uh, QBD. Uh, for those in the uh, audience that don't know, QBD is a framework where you fully define the boundaries of all parameters of your process, and you you create what's called a design space. And as long as your all your unit operations are operating within that design space and they're all tied together, then and you 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 know you file a, a regulatory submission to define what that des design space is, you know then then you're making acceptable product, and it is a great strategy for late stage and for commercial to really understand your process to understand how different operations interact with each other, how the output from one column or the output from upstream interacts with the the next steps in in the purification, but it is costly and time consuming and. I would not recommend it for companies, for for people who are trying to move very quickly from the lead identification to the IND. It's the kind of thing that I think you need to do later. And I know there was a, a lot of, like I said, a lot of talk about QBD in the last, you know, five, 10 plus years. But at the same time, I never met a client or a company that said, yes, let's spend another six to eight months to fully understand our process before we get it into human clinical studies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, exactly. And money and time are scarce resources. And uh, <laughs> that approach costs more of both. It it definitely does. And, and you know, I, I know that there are companies, you know, larger companies that have a lot of resources to be able to do that type of study. A lot of the companies I work with, and including, you know, my current and, and uh, previous employer, 
are smaller companies with with more limited resources, and we depend on outsourcing for manufacturing. And so you also have to fit into you know what this what the contract manufacturing organizations can do, and you know n- none of them have tons of resources to throw uh, at a QBD approach for any of their clients, their customers. Yeah, good point. Good point. Let's switch gears a bit here. Does platform knowledge and experience with similar molecules improve the ability to progress through early development to IND filing more efficiently? I think in general it can for monoclonal antibodies for sure. I think we all know, you know, protein A is the the capture resin for monoclonal antibodies that you capture your antibody, you wash off a lot of the impurities and that's just a starting point for every monoclonal antibody. It it makes the next steps relatively easier. Uh one of the things to think about though with with antibodies even is that the variation in an antibody although it does not there's not variation on a large number of amino acids, really, but those amino acids are on the surface and they form a very different surface profile. And that's what antibodies do because they need to bind to different targets. Well, that then means that you have different properties on the surface of the antibody, and therefore that's going to interact differently with certain resins. It's going to interact, you know, especially resins that depend on charge, that depend on PI, that depend on, on you know, what pH you're at. And so even in something that is so well understood, relatively speaking, as monoclonal antibodies, you have to look carefully at the platform. You, you really have to look at, you know, whether your antibody is performing properly on that next column after the protein A. You know, the, the protein A site is conserved, so that's not a problem. And then if you think about moving to non-antibody products, and I, I've worked on some at, at my previous employer, Harpoon Therapeutics, we had a novel T-cell engager platform, and that was more challenging. We we did have a, a platform process, but it became you know more challenging, and it was also challenging to convince the contractors that the CMOs that it wasn't an antibody product and to not put it into their antibody platform. Uh, so... It's it's a little more challenging, and again, you have to think about, you know, what does the surface look like? What is the PI? What are the biophysical properties? I think you really need to do some studies on pro- on products, even if you're trying to go into a platform process, to understand, you know, the solubility, what pH ranges are acceptable, because they are going to be different. And so, platforms are very helpful. It's a great starting place, but then you have to do some variation around the platform. I would also say, and you know, I'm talking really about the purification here. On the upstream side, platforms are great. I this the CDMOs I've worked with, they they tend to have, you know, their their established host cell line and a, a media and a feed strategy, and they do some optimization around that in process development. But on on the upstream side, I think the platforms are can be, you know, much much more. Um, reliable and and useful for again moving in in speed to ind and i guess one sort of final comment i'd like to make on on platforms is sure. that that yeah plat- platforms um are a place to start and you know we're talking about speed to ind we're starting about talking about getting that material produced and getting it ready to go into human clinical studies. That's what everybody wants to do with their product. They want to see how it behaves in a person because you're not going to get 
the same kind of results from animal models. You're not going to understand it. You need to, need to get into people. So platforms are great for getting there. There is time afterwards. You can make process changes after you made your phase one material. Almost everybody does. So if you could make enough material, reasonable quality material, uh, you know, using a, a platform adjusted if it needs to be, that's really, really useful, you know, from the economics, from the from the perspective of, of the companies. Right. So it's that the platforms are the initial enabler, but not the necessarily the answer in and of themselves. Yeah, I'd agree with that. That's absolutely true. I'm assuming you have a vast treasure trove of examples of pitfalls that can be encountered uh, when using platform approaches to accelerate early development. If so, uh, can you share some? Oh, I, I definitely can. I can I can give you a couple of a uh, couple of uh, sort of case studies. I guess also also related to the pitfalls of some of the other strategies that that we talked about earlier in this in this conversation. Um, so one of one of the things uh, I was working with an antibody product. It was a humanized uh, murine antibody that we that we had made, and it was. Uh, we had produced it in one clone and done all of the development work in one clone. This was sort of something I alluded to earlier. It turned out that that clone was unstable. So we switched at the last minute to a different clone for the production of the tox lot and of the, the GMP lot. Uh, these are both done at, at scale. You know, I can't remember 500 or 1,000 liter scale. And so when we first went into production at scale at, to make the tox material, the cells didn't grow. They did not grow. They got up to like 12 million cells per mil instead of a typical 20 to 25 million cells per mil that we had mm. been getting in, in development. So here you are, you're going into a platform. It's the you know, same cell line, same expression vector, different clone. And the cells just, something was different about that clone. So the, the cells didn't grow well. So got enough material to do the talk study. And did some uh, quick experiments to try and boost up this, the cell growth of this this clone. Went into GMP production a couple months later. Did get a, a higher cell count. Did get more product, higher higher titer, and put that through the protein A column. That worked fine. Capture, remove impurities. Went on to the next column at a, a you know. Below what we had determined was the binding capacity for, it was, I think, a cation exchange or anion exchange column, and got breakthrough. So there was something different in that feed stream, something coming from that new clone that that was not in the original clone. We obviously had a much lower binding capacity with the new clone. So you think that putting the same cells, the same uh, show cell, the same products uh, through a a platform will behave itself. It doesn't always, and you just you just have to be um, aware of that. So, mm. and, right. Uh, had a had a few other experiences, but that's the one that just stands out to me as wow. We didn't expect that. <laughs> we didn't didn't see that coming. Yeah. So, wow. Even on I, the front end, to see a, a difference in in a growth of forty percent. That was major. That was a very major and un, unanticipated. And you know, I guess we had picked that that 
backup clone doing, you know, 24 well and six well, but but we I guess we had never, you know, really studied it in a in a bioreactor setting. And we ended up fixing it by, you know, sparging, I think sparging with more oxygen, maybe doing more feeds. I don't remember exactly. It was it was a while ago with with that particular situation. But then I have had several situations where the uh development runs, you know, the smaller scale runs that you do, whether they're at three or five or 10 liters in, in your development lab, um, really don't track that well when you do your first GMP runs. You you know, you you want to be able to translate the, the uh, information from your initial runs up to your GMP runs. And yeah, it, it, it works, but I've just seen a lot of cases where the, the scale up just was not aligned. And that's, I, I find that very frustrating and and uh but it, it does happen so platforms can be good but they're just a place to start yeah yeah do you have any other uh case study example that comes to mind where accelerated timelines led to unexpected outcomes oh let's see i probably do i know i have a microbial one actually which i know we've mostly been talking about cho cells and antibody products but uh we we had a microbial one this was this is many years ago again working with a, a contract manufacturer and when we uh so again this is you know doing process development in some relatively small scale uh development lab but we didn't we were moving very quickly we didn't have a lot of development data and we could not get those cells you know, we could not get that microbial cell to expand sufficiently when we put it into the bioreactor. So I think that's that's uh, also tells you you need to do enough runs at small scale. You really need to understand what the nutritional requirements, what the aeration requirements, what the you know anti-foam requirements are of of your cell line, whether it's microbial or or mammalian, before you scale up. Right. Yeah. So. Knowing ahead of time, yeah, uh, yeah definitely. I think that that goes back to what you had mentioned earlier. You know about approach the situation cautiously. Know <laughs> what it is that you're doing, what the risks are, and keep an eye out for them before they rear their head. Yep, and spend some time understanding your molecule. You know, Perfect. You, you do. You have a lot of molecules that that maybe people don't understand how they're behaving, what their biophysical properties are. That would be my my advice to listeners to really understand your molecule as you're moving into process development and speed to IND. Great. Well, Susan, thank you so much for spending time with me today and sharing your deep expertise. I really appreciate it. And uh, I've certainly learned a lot here. Thank you, Ben. It's been a pleasure. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Please visit www.evaluatingbiopharma.com to access the on-demand video and to download the summary article. You can also access the Evaluating Biopharma content archive, sign up for our newsletter, and register to attend an upcoming Evaluating Biopharma virtual networking event. Feedback or suggestions? We'd love to hear from you.